Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Sarah Yu. Good to have you on the show. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, really excited to share your personal journey. You've had lots of experience across the world and across technology, and across so many different stakeholders. I'm excited to get started. Sure. So, Sarah Yu, you know, for those who don't know you yet, could you share a little bit about yourself, uh, starting from university? Well, I graduated from Barnard College. Just part of Columbia University uh, with a degree in architecture and a uh, minor in Shakespeare and English. I knew pretty much before I got out that I didn't want to go into architecture. And the reason being is that uh, architecture is the type of career that you do if you're not capable of doing something else. It's pretty abusive when you're in it and pretty taxing. And I kind of somehow knew that before I graduated. And Ironically, well, interestingly, my closest friends that went on to mostly go to top architecture schools like the GSD and Princeton and, and places like that ended up actually somewhat regretting their decisions. So it's sort of funny that I had that sort of foresight back then. But so I knew that I needed to do something different and I wasn't quite sure what. I did spend a year working uh, in architecture for. Um, the great grandson of Stanford White, who is sort of one of the preeminent architects of the Gilded Age in the United States. So I not only had a year of experience doing that just to make sure, because architecture is not an ordinary degree. It's a, it's sort of like a trade degree, right? You don't really, it defeats the purpose of a liberal arts education and you end up really focused on all your architecture type courses versus, you know, taking a little bit of English and chemistry. And, you know, I did want to give architecture a little bit time and, and, that experience allowed me to understand that I truly did not want to go down the path of architecture and also exposed me to the history of our country, the United States. One of the things that did stay with me of that time is when I was leaving, the Harvard Club in New York City was built by the great grandfather of the founder of the firm that I was at. This was, again, Stanford White. So the day that I was leaving, uh, my boss at the time, his great-grandson, Sam, took me to lunch and we talked about careers. And I remember saying to him, tell me about, you know, your career and do you love architecture? Remember he said to me, and this really stuck with me, his wife was a publisher and he said, you know what, when we get home at the end of the day, we both did the same thing in our jobs. You know, we're both sort of drumming up business. And that left a real impression on me because I thought, okay, he's the head of an architecture firm. She's the head of a publishing house. And neither of them is sort of doing what I thought they'd be doing during the day, which is drafting and maybe writing and editing, respectively. They were out drumming up business. And so I thought, well, if that's the end game, why not just go to business school? My mother was a very early MBA in this country, in the United States. And so she also encouraged me to look at a general all-purpose degree. Can't go wrong if you go to law school or business school. I applied to one business school. I had a French boyfriend at the time and as an architect was so interested in all things French and also, you know, as an artist, 
and ended up applying to École Nationale de Ponts et Chaussées in France, which is one of the oldest of the Grand Écoles, started by Napoleon, went over there. And that was a very critical decision, actually, it turns out, because they were using the internet. That was not happening in the United States at that time. And they were using uh, the Minitel to make online reservations and book theater tickets, etc. So that's really where I got my first taste of technology in a utilitarian environment. Sent really my first emails and, and things over there. When I also spent my summer actually working on one of the first e-commerce sites in Asia, in India, and did my summer job there, and then came back, um, and our system was a little bit different in France, so you come back and you write your equivalent of a thesis, and I wrote it on the commercialization of the internet, and at that time got tapped to be a research fellow at Harvard Business School, and that was an easy decision because my mother was a professor there and lived in Cambridge. So um, while I was working my thesis, I came home and entered Harvard Business School and started working with head of the accounting and control department and a few folks in finance and started doing research for them, which was doing a lot of foundational research for books, writing papers, writing a lot of cases. So I was responsible for things like the case on Donna Karen and the Enron case and Olympic Financial, which is about subprime lending. I also was responsible for helping put together, this would foreshadow the rest of my career, I didn't know it at that time, a program run by the professors of bringing leaders to emerging markets, so C-level executives, and exposing them to markets like India and Southeast Asia. And so I was helping put that program together. This was sort of in the late 90s, mid-late 90s. I ended up being so good at my job and kind of taking to it like a duck in water that they kept asking me to stay. And eventually, the, both the finance and accounting faculty approached me and asked me to start thinking about the DBA program, which is HBS's version of the PhD. So I started down that path, but I come from a 5,000-year-old line of professors and scholars. I also saw what my own professors were doing at school. And then I saw my friends that were graduating from the MBA program and coming back and they seemed like they had great jobs and lives in New York City. And I was sitting in Morgan Hall and I was like, well, I'll see you guys next year when you come back to recruit. And I think that just stirred something in me. And I just thought maybe I can always come back to doing this, but I won't have the opportunity to go out into the real world and get some experience. So I went through recruiting and I got recruited by Pepsi and they made, I think, four offers that year on campus. And I was one of them. I knew that I wanted to be a marketer because I knew that I was really good at marketing and I was good at communication and uh, wanted to apply it to something. So I looked at music actually first. And interestingly, as a little side thing, I, uh, my first job offer actually was to manage Metallica. That's a whole nother story. And that was a job that I created and became a little celebrity on campus amongst my friends and also outside of my friend circle. So I didn't really wait for that job to come to the job bank. I created it. I used the tools at school and created that job. But in the end, I ended up going to Pepsi. Again, that was sort of a very critical sort of decision because two things that really taught me a lot about manufacturing of food and how food gets to our stores and all of the issues around that. It taught me about process and hierarchy and brand management. There are only you know four or five places you go in the world 
to be a top brand manager and Pepsi is one of them. But it's also the place where I built the very first two brand websites. This sort of technology was new at the time. There was not even a Pepsi.com, believe it or not. This was 1998, 99. And I happened to sit next to the web developer that they just hired. So we started working on that on our own time. Um, I happened to have an immediate, I was hired by the CMO, but I worked for somebody else. And that person did not really see the uh, importance of the internet. So we ended up working on the website on our own time and then launched the website for my two brands, which were Mug Root Beer and Slice Orange Soda. So I managed two brands that were about $600 million worth of business, launched those two brands, and then the rest of Pepsi actually used those sites as templates. But while I was there, you know, one of the brands that I managed moved from number three to number two nationally. Part of that was a result of a competitive claim that we ran. Anybody remembers the Pepsi and Coke wars? It was actually an HBS case as well. That's a big deal. We repackaged and repositioned the brand. And so lots of interesting things happened that year. We were one of the few brands that finished in the black that year. But what happened was I realized that I really wanted to be in technology, right? I'd written my thesis uh, on the commercialization of the internet. I had worked in Asia over the summer on one of the very first e-commerce sites in the world. I was now at Pepsi where I had built the very first website. And let me also go back to HBS. When I was at HBS Computers, the first computer lab had just been installed while I was there by the dean at the time that was uh, very forward-looking. And people, the first wave of internet companies were my class and the class before. So many people I knew founded companies and went on to sort of define categories at that time. So I left Pepsi. And I ended up going to work for a series of software and services firms in New York. I chose them because I was very passionate about the technology and the market. And again, remember, this was way before there was the whole startup culture, but it was very exciting. And people were jumping ship to join companies within uh, startup companies within a couple of years. Interestingly, every company I went to go work for, they ranged from contextual advertising to converged communications provider to a defense technology company, they all ended up being successful by a professional, uh, by a financial metric. And that made me think maybe I had a knack for choosing companies. Because remember, I was choosing them because I was incredibly passionate about the technology to the point where I was undertaking sometimes a two and a half hour commute. And I lived in New York City. So I was doing like a reverse commute, just pretty brutal on public transportation. And I was choosing them because I was passionate about the team and the technology. So I feel like I was already thinking like an investor. And at that time, I thought, you know, it's really sort of a roller coaster ride to be at startups and you go up and down and your heart goes up and down with it. So what if I move over to the investment side? So I ended up jumping to a small partnership because it feels like you could work with a lot of different technologies and founders and be a facilitator, which I found that I was good at versus having one shot at the brass ring, which happens when you're at a startup, right? It's life or death. You drink the Kool-Aid and there's probably a good chance you're not going to be successful. But as a venture capitalist, you work with multiple opportunities and um, really have the chance to also work with amazing entrepreneurs and help them be successful. So moved over to a small partnership back up in Cambridge and Boston, uh, which was actually situated on the campus of MIT. And what we used to do was go into technical situations and laboratories and co-found companies with scientific founders. 
you would go into the laboratory, look at a particular science, you know, kick the tires. We thought that we could commercialize it. We would help bring it out of the university atmosphere along with the scientific co-founders and then come on as the C-level, C-level executives and build the company around them. And in that way, we had five or six companies that uh, were invested in, in the Series A by top-tier venture capital firms like Intel Capital, Polaris, Matrix, Kleiner, Perkins. And they worked on all different kinds of sciences, biological. You know, one of the companies uh, came out of the Harvard Physics Lab and discovered a material called black silicone, which had applications in gaming and um, a warfare. And so that was really interesting. But that also still felt like a startup because we were working on one or two companies at a time and at a very different pace than at a traditional venture firm, since we were basically co-founding companies. And at that point, um, I got tapped to go to Intel Capital. And because I was new, I think I didn't know any better. They said, hey, want to go to India? And I think that was probably because they couldn't get anybody to go at that time. So this opportunity sort of fell into my lap and I was able to take it because I happened to have a mother that was teaching both in the United States and all over the world, including India, who happens to be of Indian origin. She immigrated to the United States in the 1960s and was one of the first women on Wall Street actually in America. And um, she had been on the boards of some fairly large companies in India, and she had been telling me for a decade to get over there. So I took her advice, not knowing what I was getting into. I did not have experience living on the ground there and working there in this sort of role, very high profile, impactful role. But I jumped in and it changed my life helped launch our first $250 million emerging markets fund, invested in sector and stage agnostic companies. I was responsible for the second largest B2B marketplace in the world today called India Mart. They just went public about two years ago, which if you know anything about Indian markets, it's a very big deal. I was a generalist investor. I also invested, looked at Southeast Asia, Japan, Europe, and the United States. So basically everything outside of China and Asia and Europe and the U.S. on a case-by-case basis. My first deal was actually a U.S. company, and I loved it. I started our CSR committee. It was fantastic. Anyway, I ended up leaving Intel Capital to come back home because my family was here, but I got a taste for Asia, and I got a taste for being outside of the United States, and actually had every intention of turning around and going back, and actually wanted to be in Southeast Asia, wanted to have a foot in Southeast Asia, a foot in India, a foot in America, and a foot in Europe. I just wanted to taste it all. But what happened was I had a former entrepreneur of mine approach me. He had a sports company that was about a $30 million top-line company in sports tech. I had a lot of connections in the sports space in the United States. He did not have any contacts in America. And I had helped him with his board. I had introduced him to my mother who had taken a board seat and the CFO of Major League Baseball and the CEO of Pepsi. And folks like that, that could raise his profile and actually provide some growth advice on the board. He offered me a role to come to New York and set up the US arm. I kind of went dragging my feet, but I went because I thought it would give me a platform to really think about getting over to Southeast Asia and India. So I ran that. And of course, you know, to quote the great Sean Penn, if you want to hear God laugh, whisper your plans in his ears. I actually ended up deciding to start my own company after that year, an idea that I'd had for about 20 years, C2C Marketplace for shipping, transportation, and logistics. Of course, at the time that I thought of it, there was no Uber, there was no ride sharing. You would not get into a car with a stranger. That was weird. But I started thinking about it because I thought we've got this resource. Americans 
talk about green environment, but we love our cars and no one's going to give up their cars. So why not use somebody's car and where they're going to send something in the same direction? Or if they happen to be going to Ikea or Lowe's, get them to shop for you and bring it back. And so I was actually looking to invest in such a company and couldn't find something that I felt comfortable with. So decided to start the company. It was called Cargo. Raised funding from uh, folks that knew me well. I decided not to go the institutional route at first. My strategy was I'd let them come to me when we were successful. But um, I did want a particular type of investor. So I went to folks in my circle, um, the CEO of Intel, uh, the CEO and chairman of the Lowe's Corporation, and folks like that and raise money that way. Built a company with a remote team, 50% remote, and 50% with me in New York. And did that until I suddenly got tapped to come to the government. You know, I knew that we were going to wind down our company, not because that there wasn't a market. By the way, no one has still cracked that market. But I realized very early on, it was going to take a huge company like an Amazon. In fact, Amazon entered the space and didn't make it. And I think that they're restarting their efforts. But my investors wanted to continue to put money into this company. But I really felt that we needed to get acquired to have a chance of making it versus trying to do standalone. And my thesis was coming out to be true because we started to see competitors in the space going under with significant amounts of funding. And so uh, while I was looking for an acquirer, I was approached by the government to go be their VC PE expert in residence at NIST uh, on the Lab to Market subcommittee. So I took that job. I love teaching. I teach in different universities. And so I felt like this might be a teaching job. And after a startup, you know, Jeremy, you know, it's not always the easiest thing. I was ready for a slower life and not having all the responsibility. And so I came to the government. It was phenomenal. I worked with all of our agencies, the DOD, all of our national laboratories, Sandia, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, Brookhaven, the USDA, DARPA, NASA, the SBA, on basically taking federally funded innovation and speeding it to market by connecting it with venture capital and private equity. Because American innovation actually powers most of the advancement in the world, whether it's drinking water or tin cans or aviator glasses, aroma tomatoes. And also the internet and Google and GPS, Apple as well, got funding from the federal government. And so there's been an initiative that's a nonpartisan initiative that's gone on across administrations where all of the agencies, it's called Lab to Market, are working on this. And so I spent the year doing that. That was phenomenal. And then I got tapped to work for the deputy director at the Office of Management and Budget to help her set up a center that will help government work better by tapping private sector expertise and resources to apply to very large management and operational problems. So that's what I've been doing. I just stepped off my detail at the end of last year. So sorry, I've been talking a lot, but that is, you probably don't have any more questions for me, but that is the journey. (laughs) Well, still got lots of questions, no worries about it. So, you know, you've done, you know, obviously a ton of, you know, decisions from, you know, kind of like starting out in the academia space to Pepsi as a marketing side, to startups as operator, to VC, to being a founder, and then now on the government side. So you've probably taken on every hat, actually, in the innovation ecosystem, right? Would you say so, sir? Are you? Is there anything I've missed out? I probably wouldn't agree with you. I think there's a lot I haven't done, but I have 
worked across a few different sectors. Yeah. Let's talk about your time really at, you know, Pepsi and the, you know, the website, right? So why were you sitting next to the web developer? Was it because it was like the junior corner of the office? <laughs> or why, why were you sitting next to the web developer? <laughs> I, I never looked at it that way, but you're probably right. So we all came in as, you know, right out of business school as assistant brand managers. And um, interestingly, he happened to be the son of, well, he happened to be the best friend of the son of the CEO of Pepsi at the time. And so I think that's what his entree was. And so he was given a job and he ended up just being put in the cube next to me. And uh, we got to be very good friends. And I remember I said to him, we were kicking around ideas. And I said, we should really build a brand for Mug, a brand site for Mug around the five senses because Mug was a root beer. I'm sorry, you know, non-Americans won't know this, but it's a root beer and the positioning is about the five senses. You know, you smell it, you taste it brings back memories of sitting with grandpa on the porch. And so we built a site around the five senses. But yeah, we thought it was really exciting to do that at the time. And I remember how excited and amped we were to put up this website and how the man that I worked for at the time was like, that's not a must do. That is a, you know, fun to do when you have time, you need to be focusing on your brand. So um, yeah, but our ultimate vindication was that the rest of Pepsi thought it was great. And, you know, bigger brands were stealing our template initially to build their brand sites out. Could you describe what the website looked like? Oh, I thought it was great. So the Mug website, this was in 1998, was about the five senses. We put a game on there and each one had to do with the senses. So touch, smell, taste that tied into Mug. And it was beautifully made. And it was just games that people and mug was a mug and, and slice were brands that were focused on children and the repositioning of mug was actually to focus on mothers because we figured we needed to get the gatekeepers to give their kids soda right pepsi and um one of the pluses of mug is that it didn't have any caffeine so um the website was kind of tongue-in-cheek and it was geared towards like being a website for children to play on it and their mothers to be okay with it. So it was kind of like Candyland, nothing controversial type of games. And then the Slice website, Slice had gone from 20 different flavors to one, which became Orange Slice. And I feel like that was about, and the commercials were, you know, about how edgy Slice was. And the other interesting thing is those two brands had absolutely opposite demographics. Slice Orange showed up um, was more urban. And so it was being sponsored by kind of like, we were targeting more urban market. And the mug root beer was more of like the Midwest. So the things that were, we were tying in was like the worldwide wrestling federation. And we were always in the Midwest for that. So that the websites also kind of reflected that a little bit. I think the Slice website was a little bit more edgy and also probably had some interaction and games. but. It was important, I remember even in those days that we were thinking that we get people to interact online and get them to start, you know, thinking about this brand in a way more than, oh, I'm just going to go out. Remember, this is like the very beginning of the internet to want to come back and play those games again and again with their kids. So that's what we were thinking at the time. Okay, so you released it, they were skeptical. So how did, how, why did people or how did people suddenly get converted from skeptical or distant to actually saying this is a good idea 
What was that process like? It was championed by people that were not my boss who were higher than him. <laughs> so that was one thing. And I think that people just recognize there's this new technology and wow, maybe we need to be sort of thinking about it. And in Pepsi's defense, um, my big boss, the CMO that had hired me originally from HBS was already looking at things like online couponing. And he'd done like a back of the napkin deal with somebody for online couponing. So that was already going on in 1998, where we were allowing them to download, you know, coupons. And, you know, so there was a digital component. And it was just, again, this was the very early days. And I think that all of the other brands were thinking about how do they incorporate technology and, you know, digitization into their brands. And to help drive their businesses. So it wasn't, you know, I think we built a really great website, but I also think that the timing was right. And people were really looking for different ways to engage their brands. So it was just sort of a no-brainer. Mountain Dew and Pepsi, which were the flagship brands, actually looked at this and used it as a template for their very, very first websites. So, you know, we felt sort of vindicated uh, about that. So why did you leave uh, Pepsi to join the startup and be their director of marketing? I knew that technology was the future and Pepsi wasn't moving fast enough. And I also just, you know, I I'd spent a little time there. I figured out what the business was like and I thought it was time to jump into technology. I didn't quite know how it was going to be in my future, but I already knew that it was going to be in the future. Remember, I wrote my thesis on the commercialization of the internet in 1995. And I knew something was coming. And around the same time, you know, friends of mine and ex-boyfriends from HBS had started companies that within a year were getting purchased by Amazon. And Amazon was still in its infancy. It was still like a book and records type of thing, starting to branch out into other things. And so there was clearly this excitement that something big was coming. When somebody starts and sells a company in eight months, I mean, you know, it's not really a company, I would argue. They probably have some assets that were acquired or they have some people that the acquirer wants. But I guess the point is, is that all, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And so there was just sort of this excitement and New York was hopping. And I also didn't like, Pepsi was a long commute too. It was like a two and a half hour commute. And I was like, I really don't. And I live in the middle of the village. And I was like, I really want to find a job like five minutes away. Of course, the next job that I found was also a two and a half hour commute because I was just loved the technology and couldn't turn the job down. But I did have, you know, opportunities around me that I could have gone to, but it was, people were jumping ship left and right. You know, I remember this was the days of pets.com and toys.com and people were leaving Goldman Sachs and McKinsey to go become, you know, uh, they didn't have what was called product managers then, but to become like a marketing manager or, you know, uh, do something on the business development side or operations. And so It's a super exciting time. That makes a lot of sense. There you are. You've done, you know, four or five years as an operator on a marketing side. And then you suddenly make a decision and you're like, great venture capital. <laughs> so how did that work out? How did you make the switch from being an operator to become a venture capitalist? I would say two things. First, the environment. As I said, this was sort of the rise of, of Web 1.0. And so there was, you know, a lot of like frenzy around investing in companies, right? And I also saw that bubble. And then I saw the downfall in 2000. 
And so this kind of culture that we have today was just getting started, you know, of, and by the way, let me back up. Silicon Valley started a long time ago and venture capital has been around forever, but the kind of consumer sort of focus on venture and startups and this kind of like mythology now that we have and that everybody wants to be a startup really started around that time. And, you know, there were the traditional venture firms that were the top tier firms. People weren't really starting venture firms, but just a whole list of names that were sort of tried and true folks that you would go to for capital. And so you would basically read that people were getting funding. And also there were so many companies that were, you know, out there raising funding and, you know, their pink slip parties. I remember that too. That was like a big thing in New York because companies would go out of business and, or, you know, fire people. And, and so I just happened to choose. So that was the environment, number one. And number two, I happened to go work for companies where I told you, I told you I was a marketing person where I thought that they were going to be really successful. And that was something that was gut. I didn't, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of data to look at, right? Like online, you know, converged communications. There wasn't a lot of stuff that you could look at to figure out what the trends were. And it was more a gut instinct for me that, wait a minute, this company is going to allow people to, because at that point, cell phones were becoming big. People were still faxing, you know, as a way of communicating. There was email that was on the rise. And I'm like, wait, you can get all of this stuff on one device and a company's going to do that. That's great. I'm going to go work for them. So I happened to choose companies based on my gut. And those companies ended up being very successful by financial metrics. Not one of them shut down. They were all acquired. And so that made me think, all right, I'm picking things because I think that they're going to be successful. And they're clearly being successful. So maybe there is a different thing that I can do here that is not as painful as being at a startup 24-7. And that turned out to be venture capital, where you know, you're working with multiple opportunities and um, you're working with phenomenal founders. You're in the background facilitating. And that's how I ended up jumping to the VC side of things. What was it like being in VC in those early days? I really loved it. I think venture is a great job. I also think it's a great job for women. I realize that women are underrepresented in venture, but I think that if you can get in, it speaks to all of our skills. And I always say, hey, I think it's great being the only woman in the room, actually, because people don't forget you and no, people are going to return your calls. It was just phenomenal. It's like, for me, like teaching, I really love the opportunity. I love every part of the venture process of Finding those deals, um, you know, when I happened to be, for instance, at Intel Capital, it was a very, very, very hot market, and it was very difficult to get into deals. And I love the challenge of competing with all of the other top tier investors, plus the private equity firms, right? Because in Asia, the markets in those days weren't as deep. And so you have KKR and Blackstone competing for the same deal as Intel Capital and Kleiner Perkins. So it's the same players that are trying to invest. So I loved when, like, for instance, I won the India Mart deal that had been around for 10 years and they'd refused to take institutional capital. I was sort of a legend after that all over Southeast Asia and, and India. And people were like, how did you ever get into that deal? I love that competitive process of trying to get an entrepreneur to take my money. I love sort of being a facilitator on the board and helping them with everything from recruiting the correct board members which we did with India Mart. We wiped the board clean and actually brought in folks together, which is very unusual, and helping them with whatever they need, ent- you know, entering new markets. 
making the correct hires, sometimes just being a shoulder to cry on, helping them with exit opportunities when the time is right. So every part of my job really appealed to me. And then the other half, which is, again, in markets that are not so deep, part of my role was ecosystem building. So I needed to get out and do a lot of public speaking, uh, writing, judging business plan contests, you know, teaching, all of that stuff. I felt that was part of my job. I think some of my partners didn't feel that way. And, you know, they were, you know, more very focused on deal, you know, just different approaches, very, very focused on deals. And there were veteran deal makers, right, and had been in the industry forever. But for me, I really felt a responsibility to get out there, press the flesh, talk to people, make myself available. Also, really respond to everybody that reached out to me because it's a nascent market. You know, there have been business communities, again, in India for 5,000 years. It's just that private equity and venture capital wasn't institutionalized. And so educating folks, you know, don't send me a 100-page business plan, make it 10 pages, just basic stuff like that, right? Because you don't know what you don't know. So, um, yeah, I love every part of my job. And, uh, you know, I still think it's the greatest job in the world. Awesome. You mentioned something interesting, right? You said, you know, you're the only woman at the table. So tell us more what that was like. You said there were upsides to it. You made the best of it. So what was it like, especially in those early days as well? You know, Jeremy, to be honest, I never really thought about it. As I mentioned, I had a bit of a groundbreaking mother and um, I have a younger brother and um, also a lot of adopted brothers and sisters that my mother was bringing in throughout the years. But my brother and I were treated exactly the same, you know, same moral standards, same expectation to, you know, perform all of that stuff. So I really never thought that something was done or wasn't done for a woman because I was a woman. And I think to some extent that mentality has protected me because even today, the first thing, if something happens, that's negative. I never, I almost never think it was because of my gender. I always think it's something you know, else. I'm like, did I say something to him or did I do something? What happened? You know, it's never because I was the woman in the room. And that's actually been a very safe place to be for me, I think, psychologically. I've also ignored the times when I did realize maybe somebody or maybe someone said something and also just never took it to heart. So I never really, I ignored slash didn't acknowledge, didn't see it. But I also really owned the power that I had as a woman in the room, right? I would go to the NVCA meeting and I would be like one of three women in the room. And that was great because everybody wanted to talk to me. Everybody wanted me at their dinners. (laughs) People wouldn't forget me. And I made friends with like all the top tier GPs. And, you know, I mean, it, it was, um, you know, when I wasn't a GP myself, I mean, it was actually an advantage. And so I always, you know, just thought of it as something that um, actually was a great thing. And, and, you know, I certainly, I think in all of my years, I think there was one time when I was in kind of a village um, somewhere in Asia and talking to an entrepreneur in a rural area. And um, he actually just said, I'm sorry, I really haven't talked to a woman doing this job. And it just making me nervous. And I didn't, you know, I did not take that personally at all. And I don't think he meant it in a personal way. And so I said, okay, well, I don't bite. So you can talk to me or you can talk to the other guy and he can tell me what you're saying, you know? And we just turned it into a funny thing. And I just realized like maybe people like him hadn't ever seen somebody like me. So yeah, it just wasn't something that um, 
played a huge role in my consciousness. What was it that made you say, like, I like this job? Like, was it like the moment where you just hang out with them and, you know, you enjoyed the moment, the flow of it? So was it more like the being in the moment or was it more like the intellectual pursuit? Like, when was it that you were like, okay, I got into VC, you know, which is one part of it. But then at what point were you kind of like, oh, I like it and I have to keep going? I would say probably from day one, to be honest, because I just loved every part of the job. I loved, you know, sourcing the companies. I liked doing the due diligence. I liked negotiating with the entrepreneurs. Intel Capital is unlike other CVCs. We function actually like at that time, it was run by a financier, a very successful financier who turned it into what it is or what it was. We would look at all different kinds of deals that a lot of people would say, I don't understand what this has to do with chips. And I'm like, neither do I, but we're still going to invest in it. I mean, all joking aside, you know, there was always a strategic connection, but that connection could be making an eyes and ears deal, right? To see what was happening in the market, or it could be to extend our geographic reach. And so we were looking at deals like financial investors um, and, you know, also with a strategy, but it was a very broad kind of mandate. And so I love talking to entrepreneurs. I love figuring out how I could add value. I loved beating out the guys from Sequoia, you know, on a deal and um, having an entrepreneur choose me or getting my foot in the door in a really hot deal, which I was able to do again and again and again and again. So that became sort of a superpower that people would, even when they were right about to turn, the, turn around the term sheet, would be willing to come in and see, uh, take my meeting. That was great. And then the whole part of being on the board, right, and facilitating, you know, helping the company in whatever way possible. And that's really how I see myself as somebody that is a coach, a therapist, a facilitator, business development person. I mean, I'm not, I don't work for the company, but I strive to act like that and really be a support for the CEO in any way that I can. I love that part. Of course, I love when there's a phenomenal outcome, right? When there's an exit and you feel pride, you know, I mean, still to this day, I have so much pride for the companies that made it and even the companies that didn't, right? Because, you know, as you well know, Jeremy, the entrepreneurial journey is not easy. I know we've glamorized it and Shark Tank makes it feel like, oh, I'm going to go and pitch. It's, it's tough. And there's a lot of sacrifice involved and especially in emerging markets. And so I have so much respect and I feel super honored to work with these folks. So yeah, I love every single part of my job. Yeah. And I guess you also have a lot of empathy now also for the founder side because you are a founder yourself. I mean, just quickly before we go into the government side of it, but I guess at that point, now you're done, you know, the VC, you had been an operator, you chose to be a founder. Was it shocking? Was it surprising to be on the other side? Or maybe the, somewhere in the middle of the sandwich? No, it wasn't surprising. I will say that I never worked harder in my life than I was when I was building our product. And I loved it. I had a remote team, so I was basically up 24-7. My dev team and CTO were sitting in India. My CTO, you know, shout out to him. He was, he headed a division of Microsoft in APAC or APAC. Um, and he came to be my CTO. And then I had designers and folks out on the West Coast. So I was in between in New York. And so I basically didn't sleep. And um, I lost an entire summer, actually. I did not go outside of my apartment in New York. I had a nice apartment, so it helped. But I literally just sat in my apartment building the product. And it was the happiest and most productive summer I think I've ever had. I literally lost all my friends. 
and just didn't leave my apartment. So there were too many surprises on the entrepreneurial side. I knew that it was going to be tough, tougher, I think, than being a VC. I also was very clear that even though people were like, it's so great to be your own boss. I'm like, actually, no, I now answer to a hundred bosses. I have my investors who put the money in because of me, to be honest. And as a sole founder, and I have people that have come to work for me you know, certainly not because I was paying them market salaries. We're a startup. And, you know, I'm very clear about that. And I didn't take a salary myself. And people were coming to me because they believed in the mission of the company and they were excited about who was invested and they wanted to learn, you know, and um, they wanted to be part of a team. And that's a lot of pressure, you know, when people have given up opportunities with salaries and benefits and and, you know, and when they have families, they could be doing a lot of other things that come to work for you. So that was something that was very difficult because I did take that very, very seriously um, and did lose sleep over things. And, you know, there's always a fire to put out and there's always somebody coming to you with some operational issue or, you know, I think I should be a co-founder or whatever. And so you're dealing with a ton of different problems and at a small, lean company, the buck stops with you. So there's no like, go to HR. Well, you know, I'm HR or go to finance. Well, guess what? I'm finance. Or I wouldn't say that this was unexpected, but I would definitely say that, yeah, I used to long for my VC days when I was an entrepreneur sometimes. <laughs> that's uh, That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's interesting, which is, you know, you made a decision to join the government, right? In the White House as a presidential innovation fellow, you know, and obviously that was a new opportunity coming in. But, you know, before we turn to that, like, what was it like feeling that about winding down cargo? Did you like feel grief? Uh, how did you feel about it? Was it like a very simple decision? How was that decision for you? Very difficult. So I almost immediately saw the writing on the wall when we launched and I started to see what the dynamics were. And I thought, oh, shit. And by the way, before I started it, you know, I went and I talked to a lot of people. I talked to the folks that founded things like eBay. And, you know, clearly I have, you know, what's it called? Open Desk, I forget. But I w went and talked to founders of a lot of C2C marketplaces. And, you know, I clearly have a lot of contacts and invested in those companies. And pretty much every single person said to me, Saryu, you're really smart. Do you have any other ideas to do for a startup? Do not do a C2C marketplace. You're picking the absolute worst of the worst thing to do. But my view was this was an idea that had been burning, you know, in, in the back of my head for, you know, since, you know, I was hanging around MIT. So a, quite a while. And I was like, wait a minute, I want to solve a hard problem. And if somebody should do it, we should do it. Right. And I really you know, I was certain that no one knew the space better than me and that we knew back and forth what we needed to do. I think I might've been stumped once during the pitching process by one question. And that was by the legendary Alan Patrickoff, who founded Apex Partners and as a friend, I'd gone to raise money from him. And he asked me some question. I don't remember what it is, but I literally didn't have an answer for him. And I was like, oh crap. And I remember I went home, thought about it and emailed him the answer the next day. But I pretty much very quickly saw this is going to be very hard for a startup to pioneer and for it to organically happen. We're going to be, we need to be funded for a very long time. And 
I started to see, you know, there were companies around us that were raising significant amounts of capital. And my investors wanted to put more money in. And I kept saying, you know, just hold off, just hold. Because again, I, you know, I have a fiduciary responsibility to these people. And in my particular case, not only are they investors, I personally know these people, right? I know the CEO of Intel. And he's a friend of mine. He's a very good friend of mine today and was a friend of mine then. So, you know, these were very difficult decisions, taking other people's money. And everybody was like, we got money, you know? And so I had a very opposite problem. And what happened was I started to see the companies around us start to falter. There was a company called Sidecar, which was backed by some phenomenal investors. I think probably one of somebody that was like number one on the Midas list at the time and Richard Branson. And they went under. They had $50 million funding and they went under like within a very short period. And when that happened and they were a two-sided marketplace, I thought, yeah, right. This is what we're up against. And I just sent a note to my investors, letting them know, just want you to know, this is what's going on in the space. This is what I'm trying to tell you. We need to get acquired because we need the resources of Amazon. $50 million, even if you gave that to me today, which, you know, the company was so early, didn't warrant it. But even if you gave I don't need $50 million. I need like $200 million to make this work. And so as we were having that conversation, I actually landed up in the hospital. I had a surgery. By the way, with the startup, let's talk about hard times. I had a broken engagement as a result of it. As I mentioned, didn't leave my apartment literally for like three, four years. My philosophy is you put your head down and work. So I wasn't interested in going out and speaking about the company and you know getting press. I thought we built a beautiful product and I wanted our customer base to speak for it. And so I was very focused on that. And the only thing I really did outside of that was teach because I love teaching. But I ended up, I think the, you know, stress sort of drove certain things to happen. And I ended up in the hospital and had a surgery. And it was really when I was sitting in the recovery room, I was thinking, you know, I love this company. I still believe in this idea, but I'm like now at, 85%. I'm not at 150%. And as anyone that's done a startup knows, if you're not at 150%, you should probably sort of hang up your hat because there's no end to the problems and you really have to be, you know, in it to win it. And so that was really the time when I thought we need to really figure things out. And, you know, and by the way, you know, there were a lot of challenges throughout. I had to fire lots of people. We had to change course. You know, there were many things that we needed to do that were not always pleasant. But I would say that, you know, that, that confluence of ending up in the hospital, knowing what I knew, kind, trying to gently, con- I mean, it's a hard, it's a different kind of problem, right? When people really want to put money into your company and you're saying, I don't know, I, this is going to turn into a lifestyle company. And I just, I didn't, and I think it just wasn't in me after the hospital. And the other thing I will also add, huge issue we had was hiring. Huge issue. I could not find somebody to take the burden off of my shoulders. I think I found maybe one or two people over the course of a few years that I felt comfortable enough to say, take a piece of this. You know, I mean, when I say this, I don't mean like running a different group or anything, but really essentially kind of taking a lot of the responsibility off my shoulders and, you know, helping co-run the business with me. My CTO couldn't do that. You know, our our community managers couldn't do that. Our business development folks couldn't do that. And so that was also another big issue for us. And because it was a very hot market and folks were looking, and we're a real startup, 
you know, um, and which means there's sacrifice involved. That's been lost, I think, on the entrepreneurial community. That startup doesn't mean you go out and raise a billion dollars and buy a $200 chair for your desk. Startup is supposed to be scrappy and lean, and you're supposed to reiterate constantly, and it's supposed to be tough times. There's a journey involved. So, um, yeah, I would say that it was tough. And I think the hardest thing was actually just pulling the plug on the site because I thought we built such a beautiful thing. And I'm a tough judge. And anytime I was not sure of it, I would just take a walk through the site and try, you know, I would try it because we really kind of made the mistake of, as many young entrepreneurs do, building like it was 100 million people that were going to be on it instead of just like five. And I was like, yeah, we built something beautiful. So the hardest thing was switching off the lights. And I remember saying to my CTO, can we retrieve this if we need it? <laughs> can we retrieve the site in the futures? And he was like, yeah. By the way, our competitors were copying us too. It's really funny because my mother called me the other day and said, do you know Amazon is going into this space? I said, mom, they've been like trying to figure this out for a long time. She goes, you should try to see if you can sell the technology. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, let me call Jeff Bezos and see if he's interested. But yeah, that was tough, switching off the lights. So how, what was it like after that? So you switched off the lights. How did you process the grief there? You know, as I mentioned, it was sort of an ongoing process for me, Jeremy. So it was just something that I saw very early on. Um, I think one of the qualities that I'm very fortunate to have I think every ex-boyfriend has accused me of this too, is I sometimes I'm able to kind of see around corners and I'm a good judge of character. And I think I saw all of this very, very early that this was coming. And I thought we could raise some money and we'd go on and we could get lucky, but I, it wasn't to me, it, the dynamics of a C to C marketplace are different from anything else, right? Because there's really, you know, 50 moving parts on one side and 50 moving parts on the other. And there's only one place in time that you can make money that those two gears have to come together where they fit. And you need to spray a ton of money over all of that to make it happen, right? To build something like an eBay because it's supply and demand and it's at a C2C level. It's not even B2B. I kind of was processing all along and it was really the come to Jesus meeting was like being in the hospital just going, right. I need to just tell these guys. And my investors were supportive. You know, uh, they were like, okay, whatever you want to do. It's been an interesting journey, whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it was a, a, a process that went really almost for very early on that I saw what was happening. It wasn't like it caught us off guard, you know? Yeah, I hear you. So you were already processing and then you were already grieving to some extent before the lights were being turned off. And so it was almost the resolution of that grief process by turning things off. Is that a, a fairer description, Sarah? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think um, I, I, would, I would say that it wasn't like a, a, a grieving process all along, but I was seeing the writing on the wall and having these conversations with like the CEO of Lowe's, you know, and men that had run very big companies, CEO of Paramount Pictures, people that had invested in us and saying, I need to explain what's going to happen. And convincing folks that had no idea of how this kind of economy worked of, no, 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 you don't understand. You can give me $50 million. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a salary because I didn't take a salary. And, uh, you know, people are going to get paid and we're not going to be scrappy anymore. But I just want you to know that my confidence level of this is more 
My sense is that we really need to focus on getting acquired and pioneer this with a Amazon backing us because they have the dry gunpowder, they have the resources, they can, you know, they can fight the good fight. And, and this was just my honest opinion. And remember, I'm an investor, and this was sort of my thesis, you know, after doing this for a few years. I would say it was just a slow kind of, here's what the thesis is. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Oh yeah, Sidecar just went out of business. Yeah, I'm right. But let's like keep going. Oh, I found this great person to come work for us, but I still, you know, so it was just kind of like coming to a natural conclusion where it was like, yeah, I think I'm now at 85% and I'm not at 150%. And there's no way you can do a startup unless you're at 150%. And so when I was sitting in the hospital at 85%, I thought, yeah, right. This is, it's time. Yeah. And, you know, this sort of coming to us last chapter here. So you went on to join the White House to become a presidential innovation fellow, right? And, and you touched a whole ton, ton of different agencies. What was it like? I mean, you know, it was uh, the Trump era at a time and you were joining. Did you feel like there was an insulation? Did you feel like it was distant? And what was it like? So one of the things that you have to remember is, um, you know, regardless of the administration and whether you like a particular administration or not, the work of government goes on. And so there are thousands of people that are civil servants and also, frankly, political appointees, right? So when I went to go work for the deputy director of OMB, she was actually a Democrat um, who was a political appointee. And, you know, she ended up leaving during the COVID time to go back to the private sector. But um, so, you know, the work of government moves on regardless of who the president is. It was just a phenomenal and fascinating experience. So my father actually uh, was the head of reactor safety for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the 70s and 80s. So I grew up in Washington, D.C., but ironically, I did not have a ton of exposure to government. I think I interned on Capitol Hill for a senator and, you know, worked at the National Zoo. And that was sort of like my quote unquote government experience. But, you know, this was coming in in a different way, right? I think I might've cried my first day at NIST because I was walking down the hallway and seeing the faces of these people, these scientists, men and women that had created so much and done so much to drive science and technology and the underpinnings of our economy and national security and everything forward that I cried. And in fact, my escort was like, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm just so honored to be among this crowd. I can't believe I'm here. So it was just a phenomenal experience. Really, really enjoyed working in government. Gave me an insight to what government employees do. It also allowed me to view VC from a different perspective. It was kind of funny because I ended up giving one of the keynotes at one of the NVCA meetings um, because we had to reach venture capitalists. And some of my old colleagues, you know, were sitting in the audience from venture and you could just see their mouth fall open because they were like, you work for the government now, you know, and people were coming up to me at cocktails and going, girl, do you need a job? Like things become like that tough for you. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm doing this because I want to do it. And they were like, really? So there's always this, you know, this tension of like, why would you go work for the government? You know, government bad. But what I discovered was. There are so many dedicated people, just like our military, that go in day after day in what is sometimes a thankless job and where you maybe see incremental change and the next administration can come in and wipe out everything you've done and they keep doing it because they know that this is actually moving 
the mandate of government is much bigger. So it was a very humbling experience. Learned a lot, met a lot of great people, felt like hopefully we moved it forward incrementally. And yeah, felt like, you know, just for a moment that I was part of that good fight. You shared that being in government changed your perspective on VC. How did it change? One of the issues I was working on was better engaging VC with federally federally funded innovation. And this is basically our basic R&D that comes out of our laboratories here in America and also universities, right? A third of it is $150 billion a year. A third of it comes from government directly. And two thirds of it is government funding the universities. And the issue today is that stuff is actually way too early for people like me to go and invest, right? At the end of the day, I need to see a return in a certain period of time. And if I don't see that return, I get fired. I mean, it's really that simple. That's the way that VC works. And the government, you know, has these amazing scientists that are toiling away and doing stuff. And only the government can produce these innovations, right? Because they have the ability to work on something for 20 years and not see a return. And they have the ability to have seven different people doing this and throughout the government all over the United States. And they don't even know that the other one's working on it. That's the beauty. Only the government has this power, right? To fail again and again and again, and it doesn't matter. And then the 50th time, you know, a bunch of people come together, connect computers, and then 40 years later, it turns into the commercial internet. A VC can't do that. So the government has a very important role in innovation. The problem is, is I can't go in that early. And the resulting problem of that is we have people uh, or countries in the world that come in and say, oh, we'll give you a term sheet. And so what happens then, right? It's obvious. They now have access to our best minds, to our technology, to our innovation. It threatens everything, our national security, our status as an innovation leader. It underpins our economy, right? Silicon Valley is a creation of the Department of Defense. And so that's a real issue. And so that's why Lab to Market was started a few administrations ago. And it's carried through as part of the president's management agenda, right? In the Trump administration, Obama administration, Biden administration, it's one of those, you know, like 15 priorities the president has. And so, you know, the tension is, is getting our venture capitalists and private equity folk and industry to wake up and say, guys, you know, across sectors, whether it's biotech or semiconductors, we need you to come in and put some of your capital and expertise towards something that is against your mandate. Right. And so that's a very tough thing. It's, it's, the, it's kind of like find corner in a circle, in a circular room. That is something that's been going on. And so my take on it and my strategy, you know, which is what they brought me on the lab to market subcommittee to do, it's actually an NSTC subcommittee in the White House, was really thinking about how do we bring these together? And my strategy was like, you know, coming up with different drivers and going out and pressing the flesh, frankly, and speaking to folks and letting them know what, what was at stake, because it really is the very health and existence of venture capital is threatened without having, you know, a constant stream of government innovation that can be matured into something, you know, whenever it matures. So, yeah, I mean, it was, for me, it was a really phenomenal experience. And uh, I would have actually continued at NIST had they had funding. That's another thing I learned about government. They appropriate uh, often for just a year in advance. So I loved my team there. And my, my detail was at NIST because NIST 
led the Lab to Market subcommittee along with the Department of Energy and the White House. And my detail was to NIST, but I was a resource for all of the agencies. And I wanted to continue. They didn't have the money. And at the same time, I got tapped to go work actually in the White House at the executive office of the president, uh, which is what OMB sits within. Yeah, I, I would say that there wasn't. And if you're asking if, you know, uh, there was chaos and I didn't really see any of that, again, because so many people are working in the government. And I think especially sort of in areas of science and technology, sort of people continue on with their missions. There is changes in the that you have a different agency head who might set a different priority, but, you know, life goes on. Thank you so much, Saryu. And so, you know, tying things off here, if you were with you 10 years ago, that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question would be, you know, what advice would you give yourself? So, you know, that's 10 years ago. I think you were wrapping up your time at Intel Capital. Where were you? What were you like? And then what advice would you give yourself? To be honest, at that time, Jeremy, when I came back to the United States, I remember I looked at my mother and I'm a super type A personality. And I love India, by the way. I love it. I love the people. I love the culture. I love the markets. love everything about it. Super challenged, by the way. If you invest in India and you make it, you can invest anywhere in the world. It's hard. I remember I came home and I looked at my mother and I was like, I cannot believe I lived in India for five years. My mother was laughing. She's like, especially you, because, you know, I did fight India for about six months till I realized this, I'm losing, like, this is not going to work. I just need to go with the flow. So I think um, when I came back, it was really sort of the world was wide open. What advice would I give myself? Gosh. I was very happy, you know, actually, well, the first thing I did was go and enroll in some courses in Cambridge University in England, because uh, I love Shakespeare, and I love theater, and I love acting. And it was just a really fun and great time, you know, because it wasn't an insignificant thing to be on the ground in India for that many years. So I took a little bit of time off, I started teaching again, and then I hung out a lot at MIT, which is right before um, Joy Ito had taken over. And I realized that they needed a BC in residence there. And so I recommended they find somebody to do that, which I think they did eventually. And so I was just kind of thinking about, you know, what the options were. I really didn't have a plan. And I don't know, I don't think I have any particular advice to give myself. I'm kind of happy with the way that things turned out. All right. Thank you so much, Saryu. I really appreciate you taking time to come on the show. Thank you very much, Jeremy. This has been really fun. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.